Jenkins' ship was a floating wreck. Several sails were in tatters, rigging and other string that Vimes refused to learn the nautical names for covered the deck and trailed in the water. Such sail as remained was moving them along in the brisk breeze. Atop the mast, the lookout cupped his hands round his mouth and leaned down. Land ahoy! Even I can see that, said Vimes. Why does he have to shout? It's lucky, said Jenkins. He squinted into the haze. But your friend ain't heading for Gebra. Wonder where he's going. Vimes stared at the pale yellow mass on the horizon and then up at Carrot. We'll get her back, don't worry, he said. I wasn't actually worrying, sir, although I am very concerned, said Carrot. Eh, uh, right. Vimes waved his arms helplessly. Uh, everyone fit and well? The men in good heart, are they? It would help morale no end if you were to say a few words, sir. The monstrous regiment of watchmen had lined up on deck, blinking in the sunshine. Oh dear, round up the unusual suspects. One dwarf, one human who was brought up as a dwarf and thinks like a manual of etiquette, one zombie, one troll, me and, oh no, one religious fanatic. Constable Visit saluted. Permission to speak, sir. Go ahead, mumbled Vimes. I'm pleased to tell you, sir, that our mission is clearly divinely approved of, sir. I refer to the rain of sardines which sustained us in our extremity, sir. We were a little hungry. I wouldn't say we were in extremity. With respect, sir, said Constable Visit firmly. The pattern is firmly established, sir. Yes, indeed. The Psychulites, when being pursued in the wilderness by the forces of Oflarian Mitolites, sir, were sustained by a rain of celestial biscuits, sir. Chocolate ones, sir. Perfectly normal phenomenon, muttered Constable Shoe, probably swept up by the wind passing a baker's shop. Visit glared at him and went on, and the Murmurians, when driven into the mountains by the tribes of Mishmik, would not have survived but for a magical reign of elephants, sir. Elephants? Well, one elephant, sir, Visit conceded, but it splashed. Perfectly normal phenomenon, said Constable Shoe. Probably an elephant was picked up by a freak. And when they were thirsty in the desert, sir, the four tribes of Canli were succoured by a sudden and supernatural rain of rain, sir. A rain of rain, said Vimes, almost mesmerised by Visit's absolute conviction. Perfectly normal phenomenon, sneered Red Shoe. Probably water was evaporated from the ocean, was blown through the sky, condensed around the nuclei when it ran into cold air and precipitated. He stopped and continued irritably. Anyway, I don't believe it. So, which particular deity is on our case, said Vimes, hopefully. I shall definitely inform you as soon as I have ascertained this, sir. Er, uh, very good, Constable. Vimes took a step back. I don't pretend this is going to be easy, men, he said, but our mission is to catch up with Angua and this bastard Ahmed and shake the truth out of him. Unfortunately, this means we will be following him through his own country with which we are at war. This is bound to put a few barriers in our way, but we should not let the prospect of being tortured to death dismay us, hmm? "'Fortune favours the brave, sir,' said Carrot cheerfully. "'Good, good. Pleased to hear it, Captain. "'What is her position vis-à-vis -vis heavily armed, well-prepared and excessively banned armies?' "'Oh, no one's ever heard of fortune favouring them, sir.' "'According to General Tacticus, 
It's because they favour themselves, said Vimes. He opened the battered book. Bits of paper and string indicated his many bookmarks. In fact, men, the General has this to say about ensuring against defeat when outnumbered, outweaponed and outpositioned. It is, he turned the page, don't have a battle. Sounds like a clever man, said Jenkins. He pointed to the yellow horizon. See all that stuff in the air, he said. What do you think that is? Mist, said Vimes. Heh, yes, clatchy and mist. It's a sandstorm. The sand blows about all the time. Vicious stuff. If you want to sharpen your sword, just hold it up in the air. Oh, and it's just as well because otherwise you'd see Mount Gebra. And below it is what they call the Fist of Gebra. It's a town, but there's a bloody great fort, walls 30 feet thick. It's like a big city all by itself. It's got room inside for thousands of armed men, war elephants, battle camels, everything. And if you saw that, you'd want me to turn round right now. What's your famous general got to say about it, eh? I think I saw something, said Vimes. He flicked to another page. Ah, yes. He says... After the first battle of Stolat, I formulated a policy which has stood me in good stead in other battles. It is this. If the enemy has an impregnable stronghold, see, he stays there. That's a lot of help, said Jenkins. Vimes slipped the book into a pocket. So, constable visit. There's a god on our side, is there? Certainly, sir. But probably also a god on their side as well? Very likely, sir. There's a god on every side. Let's hope they balance out, then. The Clatchian ship's boat hit the water with the gentlest of splashes. This was because 71-hour Ahmed was standing by the winches with his sword at the ready, which had the effect of making the men lowering the boat take some trouble over their task. When we are away, you may take the ship into Gebra, he said to the captain. The captain trembled. What shall I tell them, Wali? Tell them the truth, eventually. The commander of the garrison is a man of no breeding and will torture you a little bit. Save up the truth until you need it. That will make him happy. It will help you to say that I forced you. Oh, I will, I will. Tell that lie, the captain added quickly. Ahmed nodded, slid down the rope into the boat and set it adrift. The crew watched him row through the surf. This wasn't a nice beach. It was a wrecking coast. Rib cages of broken ships crumbled into the sand. Bones and driftwood and bleached white seaweed mounded along the high tide line, and beyond the dunes of the real desert rose. Even down here, sand stung the eyes and gritted the teeth. There's sudden death on that beach, said the first mate, looking over the rail and trying to blink his eyes clear. Yes, said the captain. He's just got out of the boat. The figure on the beach pulled the other recumbent figure out of the boat and dragged him out of reach of the waves. The mate raised his bow. I could kill him from here, master. Just say the word. How sure are you? Because you'd better be really sure. First, if you miss him, you're dead, and second, if you hit him, you're still dead. Look up there. On the high distant dunes, dark against the sand-filled sky, there were mounted figures. The mate dropped his bow. How did they know we were here? Oh, they watched the sea said the captain, dregs like a good shipwreck as much as anyone else. More, in fact. A lot more. As they turned away from the rail, something leapt from the hull and entered the water with barely a splash. Detritus tried to lurk in the shade 
but there was not a lot of it about. The heat came off the high desert ahead of them like a blowtorch. I'm gonna get thick, he muttered. There was a shout from the lookout. He says someone's climbing the dunes, said Carrot. Carrying someone else, he says. Uh, female? Look, sir, I know Angua. She's not the useless type. She doesn't stand there and scream helplessly. She makes other people do that. Well, if you're sure... Vimes turned to Jenkins. Don't bother to chase the ship, Captain. Just keep heading for the shore. I don't work like that, mister. For one thing, that's a damn difficult shore. The wind's always against you, and there's some very nasty currents. Many an incautious sailor man has left his bones to bleach on those sands. No, we'll stand out a little way, and you can lower the... Uh, well, if we had a boat any more, you could lower it, and we'll drop the anchor... Oh, no, tell a lie, it turned out to be too heavy, didn't it? You just keep straight on, said Vimes. We'll all be killed. Think of it as the lesser of two evils. What's the other one? Vimes drew his sword. Me. The boat squeaked through the mysterious depths of the ocean. Leonard spent a lot of time looking out of the tiny windows, particularly interested in pieces of seaweed, which to Sergeant Colon looked like pieces of seaweed. Do you note the fine strands of Dropley's etoliated bladderack? said Leonard. That's the brown stuff, a marvellous growth which, of course, you will see as significant. Could we just assume for the moment that I have neglected my seaweed studies in recent years? said the patrician. Really? Oh, the loss is entirely yours, I assure you. The point is, of course, that the etoliated bladderack is never usually found growing above thirty fathoms, and it's only ten here. Ah, the patrician flicked through a stack of Leonard's drawings. And the hieroglyphs, an alphabet of signs and colours. Colours as a language. What a fascinating idea. An emotional intensifier, said Leonard. But of course we ourselves use something like it, red for danger and so on. I never did succeed in translating it, though. Colours as a language, murmured Lord Vetinari. Sergeant Colon cleared his throat. I know something about seaweed, sir. Yes, Sergeant. Yes, sir. If it's wet, sir, it means it's going to rain. Well done, Sergeant, said Lord Vetinari without turning his head. I think it is quite possible that I will never forget you said that. Sergeant Colon beamed. He had made a contribution. Nobby nudged him. What are we doing down here, Sarge? I mean, what's it all about? Poking around, looking at weird marks on the rocks, going in and out of caves, and the smell of me. It's not me, said Sergeant Colon. Smells like sulphur. Little bubbles steamed past the window. It stunk up on the surface, too, Nobby went on. Nearly finished, gentlemen, said Lord Vetinari, putting the papers aside. One last little venture, and then we can surface. Very well, Leonard, take us underneath. Er, aren't we underneath already, sir? said Colon. Only underneath the sea, Sergeant. Ah, right. Colon gave this due consideration. Is there anything else to be under, then, sir? Yes, Sergeant. Now we're going under the land. The beach was a lot closer now. The watchman couldn't help noticing that the sailors were all hurrying to the blunt end of the ship and hanging on to any small, lightweight and above all buoyant objects they could find. 
This seems close enough, said Vimes. Right, stop here. Stop here? How? Don't ask me, I'm no sailor. Aren't there some sort of breaks? Jenkins stared at him. You, you landlubber. I thought you never used that word. I never met one like you before. You even think we call the bows the sharp end. It was, the crew agreed later, one of the strangest landings in the history of bad seamanship. The shelving of the beach must have been right and the tides as well, because the ship did not so much hit the beach as sail up it, rising out of the water as the keel debarnacled itself on the sand. Finally, the forces of wind, water, impetus and friction all met at the point marked fall over slowly. It did so, earning the title of world's most laughable shipwreck. Well, that might have been worse, said Vimes, when the splintering noises had died away. He eased himself out of a tangle of canvas and adjusted his helmet with as much aplomb as he could muster. He heard a groan from the lopsided hold. Is that you, Cherry? Yes, Detritus. Is this me? No. Sorry. Carrot eased his way down the sloping deck and jumped onto the damp sand. He saluted. All present and lightly bruised, sir. Shall we establish a beachhead? A what? We have to dig in, sir. Vimes looked both ways along the beach, if such a sunny-sounding word could be applied to the forsaken strand. It was really just a hem to the land. Nothing stirred except the heat haze, and in the distance one or two carrion birds. What for? he said. Establish a defensible position. It's just one of those things soldiers do, sir. Vimes glanced at the birds. They were approaching with a kind of sidling, sideways hop ready to move in just as soon as anyone had been dead for a few days. Then he flicked through Tacticus until the word beachhead caught his eye. It says here, if you want your men to spend much time wielding a shovel, encourage them to become farmers, he said. So I think we'll press on. He can't have got very far. We'll be back soon. Jenkins waded out of the surf. He didn't look angry. He was a man who had passed through the fires of anger and was now in some strange, peaceful bay beyond them. He pointed a quivering finger at his stricken ship and said, Pretty good shape, all things considered, said Vimes. I'm sure you and your salty sailors will be able to float it again. Jenkins and his wading crew watched the regiment as it slithered and complained its way up the side of the dune. Eventually the crew went into a huddle and drew lots, and the cook, who was always unlucky in games of chance, approached the captain. "'Never mind, captain,' he said. "'We can probably find some decent bolts of timber in all this driftwood, and a few days' work with block and tackle should—' mm "'Only we'd better get started, because he said they won't be long.' "'They won't be back,' said the captain. "'The water they've got won't last a day up there. "'They haven't got the right gear.' and once they're out of sight of the sea, they'll get lost. Good. It took half an hour to get to the top of the dune. The sand had been stamped down, but even as Vimes watched, the wind caught the particles and nibbled away at the prints. Camel tracks, said Vimes. Well, camels don't go all that fast. Let's... I think Detritus is having real trouble, sir, said Carrot. The troll was standing with his knuckles on the ground. The motor of his cooling helmet sounded harsh for a moment in the dry air, and then stopped as the sand got into the mechanism. Feeling thick, he muttered. My brain hurts. Quick, hold your shield over his head, said Vimes. Give him some shade. He's never going to make it, sir, said Carrot. Let's send him back down to the boat. We need him. Quick, cheery, fan him with your axe. 
at which point the sand stood up and drew a hundred swords. Bingly, 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 beep, said a cheerful, if somewhat muffled voice. Eleven a.m. Get haircut. Eh, that's right, isn't it? It wasn't large, but slabs of collapsing building had smashed together in such a way that they made a cistern that the rain had filled half full. Solid Jackson slapped his son on the back. Fresh water at last, he said. Well done, lad. You see, I was looking at these sort of painting things, Dad, and then... Yeah, yeah, pictures of octopuses, very nice, said Jackson. <laughs> the ball is on the other foot now, and no mistake. It's our water on our side of the island, and I'd just like to see them greasy buggers claim otherwise. Let them keep their damn driftwood and suck water out of fishes. Yeah, Dad, said Les, and we can trade them some of the water for wood and flour, right? His father waved a hand cautiously. Maybe, he said. No need to rush into that, though. We're pretty close to finding a seaweed that'll burn. I mean, what are our long-term objectives here? Cooking meals and keeping warm, said Les hopefully. Well, initially, said Jackson. That's obvious. But you know what they say, lad. Give a man a fire and he's warm for a day, but set fire to him and he's warm for the rest of his life. See my point? I don't think that's actually what the saying is. I mean, we can stop here living on water and raw fish for, well, practically forever, but that lot can't go without proper fresh water for much longer, see? So they'll have to come begging to us, right? And then we deal on our terms, eh? He put his arm around his son's reluctant shoulders and waved a hand at the landscape. I mean, I started out with nothing, son, except that old boat that your granddad left me, but... You worked and scraped said Les wearily. I worked and scraped. And you've always kept your head above water? Right, I've always kept my head above water. And you've always wanted to leave me something that... Ow! Stop making fun of your dad, said Jackson. Otherwise I'll wallop the other ear. Look, you see this land? You see it? I see it, Dad. It's a land of opportunity. But there's no fresh water and all the ground's full of salt, Dad. And it smells bad. That's the smell of freedom, that is. Smells like someone did a really big fart, Dad. Ow! Sometimes the two are very similar, and it's your future I'm thinking of, lad. Les looked across the acres of decomposing seaweed in front of him. He was learning to be a fisherman like his father before him, because that's how the family had always done it, and he was too good-natured to argue, although he actually wanted to be a painter, like no one in the family had ever been before. He was noticing things, and they worried him, even though he couldn't quite say why. But the buildings didn't look right. Here and there were definite bits of, well, architecture, like more Porkian pillars and the remains of Clatchian arches. But they'd been added to buildings that looked as though some ham-fisted people had just piled rocks on top of one another. And then in other places the slabs had been stacked on top of ancient brick walls and tiled floors. He couldn't imagine who'd done the tiling, but they did like pictures of octopuses. The feeling was stealing over him that more Porkians and Clatchians arguing over who owned this piece of old sea bottom was extremely pointless. Uh, I'm thinking about my future too, Dad, he said. I really am. Far below solid Jackson's feet, the boat surfaced. Sergeant Colon reached automatically for the screws that held the lid shut. Don't open it, Sergeant! shouted Leonard, rising from his seat. The air's getting pretty lived in, sir. It's worse outside. 
Worse than in here? I'm almost certain. But we're on the surface. A surface, Sergeant, said Lord Vetinari. Beside him, Nobby uncorked the seeing device and peered through it. We're in a cave, said Colon. Er, uh, Sarge, said Nobby. Capital, well worked out, said Lord Vetinari. Yes, a cave, you could say that. Er, uh, Sarge, said Nobby again, nudging Colon. This isn't a cave, Sarge. It's bigger than a cave, Sarge. What, you mean like a cavern? Bigger. Bigger than a cavern? More like a... Uh, a big cavern. Yeah, that'd be about right, said Nobby, taking his eye away from the device. Have a look yourself, Sarge. Sergeant Colon peered into the tube. Instead of the darkness he was half expecting, he saw the sea's surface bubbling like a boiling saucepan. Green and yellow flashes of lightning danced across the water, illuminating a distant wall that seemed practically a horizon. The tube squeaked around. If this was a cave, it was at least a couple of miles across. How long do you think? said Lord Vetinari behind him. Well, the rock has a large proportion of tufa and pumice, very light, and once floated up the build-up of gas starts to escape very rapidly because of the swell, said Leonard. I don't know, perhaps another week, and then I think it takes a very long time for a sufficient bubble to build up again. What are they saying, Sarge? said Nobby. This place floats. A most unusual natural phenomenon, Leonard went on. I'd have thought it was just a legend had I not seen it for myself. Of course it's not floating, said Sergeant Colon. Honestly, Nobby, how are you ever going to find out anything when you ask daft questions like that? Land's heavier than water, right? That's why you find it at the bottom of the sea. Yeah, but he said pumice, and my grand had a pumice stone that worked a treat for getting tough skin off your feet in the tub, and that'd float. That sort of thing happens in bathtubs, maybe, said Colon. Not in real life. This is just a phenomena. It's not real. Next thing you'll be saying, there's rocks up in the sky. Yeah, but I am a sergeant, Nobby. Yes, yeah, Sarge. It puts me in mind, said Leonard, of those nautical stories about giant turtles that sleep on the surface, thus causing sailors to think they are an island. Of course, you don't get giant turtles that small. Hey, Mr. Quirm, this is an amazing boat, said Nobby. Thank you. I bet you could even smash up ships with it if you wanted. There was an embarrassed silence. Altogether, an interesting experience, said Lord Vetinari, making some notes. And now, gentlemen, downward and onward, please. The watchmen drew their weapons. They are dregs, sir, said Carrot, but this is all wrong. What do you mean? We're not dead yet. They're watching us like cats watch mice, thought Vimes. We can't run away and we can't win a fight, and they want to see what we'll do next. What does General Tacticus have to say about this, sir? said Carrot. There's a hundred of them, thought Vimes, and six of us, except that Detritus is drifting off, and there's no knowing what particular commandment Visit is obeying right now, and Reggie's arms tend to drop off when he gets excited. I don't know, he said. Probably something along the lines of, don't allow this to happen. Why don't you check, sir, said Carrot, not taking his eyes off the watching Dregs. What? I said, why don't you check, sir? Right now, might be worth a try, sir. That's crazy, Captain. 
Yes, sir. The Dregs have some very strange notions about crazy people, sir. Vimes pulled out the battered book. The Dreg nearest to him, with a grin almost as wide and as curved as his sword, had a certain additional swagger that suggested chieftainship. A huge ancient crossbow was slung on his back. I say, said Vimes, could we just delay things a little? He strode towards the man, who looked very surprised and waved the book in the air. This is a book by General Tacticus. Don't know if you ever heard of him. Quite a big name in these parts once. Probably slaughtered your great-great-great-great-grandfather, in fact. And I just want to take a moment to see what he has to say about this situation. You don't mind, do you? The man gave Vimes a puzzled look. This might take a moment. There's no index, but I think I saw something. The chieftain took a step backwards and looked at the men next to him, who shrugged. I wonder if you could help me with this word here, Vimes went on, reaching the man's side and holding the book under his nose. He got another puzzled grin. What Vimes did next was known in Ark Morpork's alleyways as the friendly handshake, and consisted largely of driving his elbow into the man's stomach, then bringing his knee up to meet the man's chin on its way down, gritting his own teeth because of the pain in both knee and ankle, and then drawing his sword and holding it to the dreg's throat before he could scramble up. Now, Captain, said Vimes, I'd like you to say in a loud, clear voice that unless they back off a really long way, this gentleman here is going to be in some very serious legal trouble. Mr Vimes, I don't think do it. The dreg looked into his eyes while Carrot hawked his way through the demand. The man was still grinning. Vimes couldn't risk shifting his gaze, but he sensed some puzzlement and confusion among the tribesmen. Then, as one man... They charged. A Clatchian fishing boat, whose captain knew which way the wind was blowing, made its way to the harbour of Alcali. It seemed to the captain that despite the favourable wind, he wasn't making quite the speed he should. He put it down to barnacles. Vimes awoke with a noseful of camel. There are far worse awakenings, but not as many as you might think. By turning his head, which took some effort, he ascertained that the camel was sitting down. By the sound of things, it was digesting something explosive. But now how had he got here? Oh, gods. But it should have worked. It was classic. You threatened to cut off the head and the body just folded up. That was how everyone reacted, wasn't it? That was practically how civilization worked. Put it down to cultural differences, then. On the other hand, he wasn't dead. According to Carrot, knowing the Dregs for five minutes and still being alive at the end of it meant that they really, really liked you. On the other hand, he'd just given their headman a handshake, which influenced people without making friends. Well, no sense lying over this saddle bound hand and foot and dying of sunstroke all day. He ought to start being a leader of men again, and would do so just as soon as he could get this camel out of his mouth. Bingly, 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 beep. Yes, said Vimes, struggling with his bonds. Would you like to know about the appointments you missed? No. I'm trying to get these damn ropes untied. Do you want me to put that on your to-do list? Oh, you've woken up, sir. It sounded like Carrot's voice, and it was the sort of thing he'd say. Vimes tried to turn his head. What he saw was mainly a white sheet, but it then became Carrot's face upside down. They asked if they should untie you, but I said you hadn't been getting enough rest lately, Carrot went on. Captain, my arms and legs have gone to sleep, Vimes began. Oh, well done, sir. That's a start, at least. Carrot. Yes, sir? I want you to listen very carefully to the order I am about to give you. Certainly, sir. 
The point I'm making is that it won't be a request, or a suggestion, or some sort of hint. Understood, sir? I have, as you know, always encouraged my officers to think for themselves and not blindly obey me, but sometimes in any organisation it is necessary for instructions to be followed to the letter and with alacrity. Right, sir. Untie me right now, or you'll bloody well live to regret untying me. Er, uh, sir, I believe there is an inadvertent inconsistency in... Carrot, of course, sir. His ropes were cut. He slid down onto the sand. The camel turned its head, looked at him with its nostrils for a moment, and then looked away. Vimes managed to sit upright while Carrot busied himself cutting the rest of his bonds. Captain, why are you wearing a white sheet? It's a burnus, sir. Very practical for desert wear. The dregs gave them to us. Us? The rest of us, sir. Everyone's okay? Oh, yes, but they attacked. Yes, sir, but they only wanted to take us prisoners, sir. One of them did accidentally cut Reggie's head off, but he did help him sew it on again, so no real harm done there. I thought Dregs didn't take prisoners. Beats me too, sir, but they say if we try to escape, they'll cut our feet off, and Reg says he hasn't got enough thread for everyone, sir. Vimes rubbed his head. Someone had hit him so hard his helmet was dented. What went wrong, he said. I had their boss down. As I understand it, sir, the Dregs think that any leader who is stupid enough to be defeated so easily isn't worth following. It's a Clatchian thing. Vimes tried to persuade himself that there wasn't a hint of sarcasm in Carrot's voice as he went on. They're not really very interested in leaders, sir, to tell you the truth. They look on them as a sort of ornament. You know, just someone to shout charge, sir. A leader has to do other things, Carrot. The dregs think charge pretty well covers all of them, sir. Vimes managed to stand up. Strange muscles twanged in his legs. He tottered forward. Here, let me give you a hand, said Carrot, catching him. The sun was setting. Ragged tents clustered below one of the dunes, and there was the glow of firelight. Someone was laughing. It didn't sound like a prison, but then thought Vimes the desert was probably better than bars. He wouldn't even know which way to run, feet or no feet. The dregs, like all Clatchians, are a very hospitable people, said Carrot, as if he'd memorised this. They take hospitality very, very seriously. Their captors were sitting around the fire. So were the watchmen. They'd also been persuaded to dress more suitably, which meant that Cheery looked like a girl in her mum's dress, apart from the iron helmet, and Red Shoe looked like a mummy, and Detritus was a small snow-covered mountain. He's gone very insensible in all this heat, whispered Carrot, and that's Constable Visit over there arguing religion. There are 653 religions on the Clatchian continent. He must be having fun. And this is Jabbar, said Carrot. Exhibit A who looked like a slightly older version of 71-hour Ahmed, stood up and salaamed to Vimes. Offendi, he said. He's the... well, he's like an official wise man, said Carrot. Oh, so he's not the one who tells them to charge, said Vimes. His head buzzed with the heat. No, that's the leader, said Carrot, whenever they have one. So perhaps Jabbar tells them when it's wise to charge, said Vimes brightly. It is always wise to charge, Ovendi, said Jabbar. He bowed again. My tent is your tent, he said. It is, said Vimes. My wives are your wives. 
Vimes looked panicky. They are, really? My food is your food, Jabbar went on. Vimes stared down at the dish by the fire. It looked like a sheep or a goat had been the main course, and the man bent down, picked up a morsel, and handed it to him. Sam Vimes looked at the mouthful, and it looked back. The best part, said Jabbar, and made appreciative sucking noises. He added something in Clatchian. There was some muffled laughter from the other men around the fire. Uh, this looks like a sheep's eyeball, said Vimes doubtfully. Yes, sir, said Carrot, but it is unwise to... You know what, Vimes went on, I think this is a little game called Let's See What Effendi Will Swallow, and I'm not swallowing this, my friend. Jabbar gave him an appraising look. The sniggering stopped. Then it is true that you can see further than most, he said. So can this food, said Vimes. My father told me never to eat anything that can wink back. There was one of those little hanging-by-a-thread moments, which might suddenly rock one way or the other into a gale of laughter or sudden death. Then Jabbar slapped Vimes on the back. The eyeball shot off his palm and into the shadows. Well done! Extremely good! First time it have not worked in twenty years! Now sit down and have proper rice and sheep, just like mother. There was a certain feeling of relaxation. Vimes found himself pulled down, bottoms shuffled aside to make room for him, and a big slab of bread dripping with meat was put in front of him. Vimes prodded at it, as politely as he dared, and then took the usual view that if you can recognise at least half of it, it's probably okay to eat the rest. So we're your prisoners, Mr Jabbar. Honoured guests, my tent is... But how could I put this? You want us to enjoy your hospitality for some time. We have tradition, said Jabbar. A man who is a guest in your tent, even if he is your worst enemy, you owe him hospitality for three days. Three days, eh? said Vimes. I learn language on... Jabbar waved a hand vaguely. You know, wooden thing, a camel of the sea. Boat? Right, but too many water. He slapped Vimes on the back again, so that hot fat spilled into his lap. Any road up. Lots speaking more Porkian these days, Offendi. It is a language of merchant. He put an inflection on the word that suggested it was the same as earthworm. So you have to know how to say things like give us all your money, said Vimes. Why ask, said Jabbar. We take it anyway. But now, he spat at the fire with amazing accuracy, they say we got to stop this is wrong. What harm we do? Apart from killing people and taking all their merchandise, said Vimes. Jabbar laughed again. Wally said you were a big diplomatic. But we don't kill merchants why should we kill merchants? What is the sense? How foolish to be killing gift horse that lays the golden egg. You could make money exhibiting it, certainly, said Vimes. We kill merchants, we rob too much. They never come back. Dumb. We let them go, they get rich again. Our sons rob them. Such is wisdom. Ah, it's a sort of agriculture, said Vimes. Right, but if you plant merchants, they don't grow so good. 
Vimes realised that it was getting colder as the sun went down. In fact, a lot colder. He inched closer to the fire. Why is he called 71-hour Ahmed, he said. The murmur of conversation stopped. Suddenly, all eyes were on Jabbar, except the one that had ended up in the shadows. Not so diplomatic, said Jabbar. We chase him up here, then suddenly we're ambushed by you. That seems... I know nothing, said Jabbar. Why won't you... Vimes began. Er, uh, sir, said Carrant urgently. That would be very unwise, sir. Look, I had a bit of a talk with Jabbar while you were, uh, resting. It's a bit... political, I'm afraid. What is it? Prince Kadram is trying to unite the whole of Clatch, you see. Dragging it, kicking and screaming into the century of the fruit bat. Why, yes, sir. How did you... Just a lucky guess. Go on. But he has been having trouble, said Carrot. What kind, said Vimes. Us, said Jabbar proudly. None of the tribes like the idea, sir, Carrot went on. They've always fought amongst themselves and now most of them are fighting him. Historically, sir, Clatch isn't so much an empire as an argument. He say you must be educated. You must be learning to pay taxes. We do not wish to be educated about taxes, said Jabbar. So you think you're fighting for your freedom, said Vimes. Jabbar hesitated and looked at Carrot. There was a brief exchange in Clatchian. Then Carrot said, That's a rather difficult question for a dreg, sir. You see, their word for freedom is the same as their word for fighting. They certainly make their language do a lot of work, don't they? Vimes was feeling better in the colder air. He took out a crushed and damp packet of cigars, pulled a coal out of the fire and took a deep drag. So, Prince Charming's got a lot of troubles at home, has he? Does Vetinari know this? Does a camel shit in the desert, sir? You're really getting the hang of Clatch, aren't you? said Vimes. Jabbar rumbled something. There was more laughter. Er, uh, Jabbar says a camel certainly does shit in the desert, sir, otherwise you wouldn't have anything to light your cigar with, sir. Once again, there was one of those moments when Vimes felt that he was under close scrutiny. Be diplomatic, Vetinari had told him. He took another deep draw. Improves the flavour, he said. Remind me to take some home. In Jabbar's eyes, the judges held up at least a couple of grudging eights. A man on a horse came and said we must fight the foreign dogs. That's us, sir, said Carrot helpfully, because you have stolen an island that is under the sea. But what is that to us? We know no harm of you, foreign devils. But the men who oil their beards in Al-Kali we do not like. So we send him back. All of him, said Vimes. We are not barbaric. He was clearly a madman, but we kept his horse. And 71-hour Ahmed told you to keep us, didn't he, said Vimes. No one orders the dregs. It is our pleasure to keep you here. And when will it be your pleasure to let us go? When Ahmed tells you? Jabbar stared at the fire. I will not speak of him. He is devious and cunning and not to be trusted. But you are dregs too. Yes. Jabbar slapped Vimes on the back again. We know what we are talking about. 
The Clatchian fishing boat was a mile or two out of harbour when it seemed to its captain that it was suddenly riding better in the water. Perhaps the barnacles have dropped off, he thought. When his boat was lost in the evening mists, a length of bent pipe rose slowly out of the swell and squeaked around until it faced the coast. A distant tinny voice said, Oh, no! And another tinny voice said, What's up, Sarge? Take a look through this. OK. There was a pause. Then the second tinny voice said, Oh, bugger! What was riding at anchor before the city of Al-Khali wasn't a fleet. It was a fleet of fleets. The masts looked like a floating forest. Down below, Lord Vetinari took his turn to peer through the pipe. So many ships, he said, in such a short time, too. How very well organised. Very well organised. One might almost say astonishingly well organised. As they say, if you would seek war, prepare for war. I believe, my lord, the saying is, if you would seek peace, prepare for war, Leonard ventured. Vetinari put his head on one side and his lips moved as he repeated the phrase to himself. Finally, he said, No, no, I just don't see that one at all. He ducked back into his seat. Let us proceed with care, he said. We can go ashore under cover of darkness. Er, uh, can we maybe go ashore under cover of cover, said Sergeant Colon. In fact, these extra ships will make our plan that much easier, said the patrician, ignoring him. Our plan? said Colon. People within the Clatchian hegemony come in every shape and colour. Vetinari glanced at Nobby. Practically every shape and colour, he added. So our appearance on the streets should not cause undue comment. He glanced at Nobby again. To any great extent. But we're wearing a uniform, sir, said Sergeant Colon. It's not like we can say we're on our way to a fancy dress party. Well, I'm not taking mine off said Nobby firmly. I'm not running around in me drawers, not in a port. Sailors are at sea a long time. You hear stories. That'd be worse, said the sergeant, without wasting time calculating how long any sailor would need to be at sea before the vision of Nobby Nobs would present itself as anything other than a target. Because if we're not in uniform, we'll be spies. And you know what happens to spies? Are you going to tell me, Sarge? Excuse me, your lordship. Sergeant Colon raised his voice. The patrician looked up from a conversation with Leonard. Yes, Sergeant. What do they do to spies in Clatch, sir? Uh, let me see, said Leonard. Oh, yes, I believe they give you to the women. Nobby brightened up. Oh, well, that doesn't sound too bad. Er, uh, no, Nobby, Colon began. "'Cause I've seen the pictures in that book, "'The Perfumed Allotment, that Corporal Angua was reading, "'and, no, listen, Nobby, you got the wrong... "'I mean, blimey, I didn't know you could do that with a... "'Nobby, listen, and then there's this bit where she... "'Corporal Nobs!' Colon yelled. "'Yes, Sarge?' Colon leaned forward and whispered in Nobby's ear. "'The Corporal's expression changed slowly. "'They really?' Yes, Nobby. They really... Yes, Nobby. They don't do that at home. We ain't at home, Nobby. I wish we was. Although you hear stories about the agony, aunt, Sarge. Gentlemen, said Lord Vetinari, I am afraid Leonard is being rather fanciful. That may apply to some of the mountain tribes, but Clatch is an ancient civilization, 
and that sort of thing is not done officially. I should imagine they'd give you a cigarette. A cigarette? said Fred. Yes, Sergeant, and a nice sunny wall to stand in front of. Sergeant Colon examined this for any downside. A nice roll-up and a wall to lean against, he said. I think they prefer you to stand up straight, Sergeant. Fair enough. No need to be sloppy just because you're a prisoner. Ah, well, I don't mind risking it, then. Well done, said the patrician calmly. Tell me, Sergeant, in your long military career, did anyone ever consider promoting you to an officer? No, sir. I cannot think why. Night poured over the desert. It came suddenly in purple. In the clear air, the stars drilled down out of the sky, reminding any thoughtful watcher that it is in the deserts and high places that religions are generated. When men see nothing but bottomless infinity over their heads, they have always had a driving and desperate urge to find someone to put in the way. Life emerged from the burrows and fissures. Soon, the desert was filled with the buzz and click and screech of creatures which, lacking mankind's superior brain power, did not concern themselves with finding someone to blame, and instead tried to find someone to eat. At around three in the morning, Sam Vimes walked out of the tent for a smoke. The cold air hit him like a door. It was freezing. That wasn't what was supposed to happen in deserts, was it? Deserts were all hot and sand and camels, and... He struggled for a while as a man whose geographical knowledge got severely cramped once he got off paved road. Camels, yes, and dates, and possibly bananas and coconuts, but the temperature here made your breath tinkle in the air. He waved his cigar packet theatrically at a dreg who was lounging near the tent. The man shrugged. The fire was just a heap of grey, but Vimes poked around in the vain hope of finding a glowing ember. He was amazed at how angry he was. Ahmed was the key, he knew it and now they were stuck out here in the desert. A man had gone, and they were in the hands of quite likeable people, fair enough, brigands maybe, the dry land equivalent of pirates, but Carrot would have said they were jolly good chaps for all that. If you were content to be their guests, then they were as nice as pie, or sheep's eyeball and treacle, or whatever you got out here. Something moved in the moonlight. A shadow slipped down the side of a dune. Something howled out in the desert night. Tiny hairs rose all down Vimes's back, just like they had for his distant ancestors. The night is always old. He'd walked too often down dark streets in the secret hours and felt the night stretching away, and known in his blood that while days and kings and empires come and go, the night is always the same age, always eons deep. Terrors unfolded in the velvet shadows, and while the nature of the talons may change, the nature of the beast does not. He stood up quietly and reached for his sword. It wasn't there. They'd taken it away. They'd not even... A fine night, said a voice beside him. Jabbar was standing by his shoulder. Who is out there? Vimes hissed. An enemy. Which one? Teeth gleamed in the shadows. We will find out, Offendi. Why would they attack you now? Maybe they think we have something they want, Offendi. More shadows slid across the desert, and one rose right up behind Jabbar, reached down and picked him up. A huge grey hand dragged his sword out of his belt. What do you want me to do with him, Mr. Vames? Detritus? The troll saluted with the hand that still held the dreg. All present and correct, sir. But, and then Vimes realised, it's freezing cold, your brain's working again. 
with rather more efficiency, sir. Is this a gin? said Jabbar. I don't know, but I could certainly do with one, said Vimes. He finally managed to locate some matches in his pockets and lit one. Put him down, Sergeant, he said, puffing his cigar into life. Jabbar, this is Sergeant Detritus. He could break every bone in your body, including some of the small ones in the fingers, which are quite hard to do. The darkness went schwap, and something whispered past the back of his neck, just a slice of a second before Jabbar cannoned into him and bore him to the ground. They shoot at the light, mm-hmm. Vimes raised his head cautiously and spat out sand and fragments of tobacco. Mr. Vimes? Only Carrot could whisper like that. He associated whispering with concealment and untruth, and compromised by whispering very loudly. To Vimes's horror, the man came round the edge of a tent, holding a tiny lamp. Put that damn! But he didn't have time to finish the sentence, because somewhere out in the night a man screamed. It was a high-pitched scream and was suddenly cut off. Ah, oh, said Carrot, crouching down by Vimes and blowing out the lamp. That was Angua. That was nothing like... Oh, yeah, I think I see what you mean, Vimes said uneasily. She's out there, is she? I heard her earlier. She's probably enjoying herself. She doesn't really get much of a chance to let herself go in Ark Moorpork. Er, uh, no. Vimes had a mental picture of a werewolf letting go, but surely Angua wouldn't. You too. Um, you're getting along okay, are you? He said, trying to make out shapes in the darkness. Oh, fine, sir, fine. So her turning into a wolf occasionally doesn't worry you? Vimes couldn't bring himself to say it. No problems, then? Oh, not really, sir. She buys her own dog biscuits and she's got her own flap in the door. When it's full moon, I don't really get involved. There were shouts in the night and then a shape erupted from the darkness, streaked past Vimes and disappeared into a tent. It didn't wait for a door. It simply hit the cloth at full speed and continued until the tent collapsed around it. And what is that? said Jabbar. This may take some explaining, said Vimes, picking himself up. Carrot and Detritus were already hauling at the collapsed tent. We are dregs, said Jabbar reproachfully. We are supposed to fold tents silently in the night, not... There was enough moonlight. Angua sat up and snatched a piece of tent out of Carrot's hand. Thank you, she said, wrapping it round her, and before anyone says anything, I just bit him on the bum. Hard, and that was not the soft option, let me tell you. Jabbar looked back into the desert, and then down at the sand, and then at Angua. Vimes could see him thinking, and put a fraternal arm around his shoulders. I'd better explain, he began. There's a couple of hundred soldiers out there, Angua snapped. Later. They're taking up positions all round you, and they don't look nice. Has anyone got any clothes that might fit, and some decent food, and a drink? There's no water in this place. They will not dare attack before dawn, said Jabbar. And what will you do, sir, said Carrot? At dawn, we will charge. Ah, uh, I wonder if I could suggest an alternative approach. Alternative? It is right to charge. Charging is what dawn is for. Carrot saluted Vimes. I've been reading your book, sir, while you were uh, asleep. Tacticus has got quite a lot to say about how to deal with overwhelming odds, sir. Yes. He says take every opportunity to turn them into underwhelming odds, sir. We could attack now. But it's dark, man. It's just as dark for the enemy, sir. I mean, it's pitch black. You wouldn't know who the hell you were fighting. Half the time you'd be shooting your own side. We wouldn't, sir, because there'd only be a few of us, sir. 
All we need to do is crawl out there, make a bit of noise, and then let them get on with it. Tacticus says all armies are the same size in the night, sir. There might be something in that, said Angua. They're crawling around in ones and twos, and they're dressed pretty much like... She waved a hand at Jabbar. This is Jabbar, said Carrot. He's sort of not the leader. Jabbar grinned nervously. It happens often in your country, where dogs turn into naked women. Sometimes days can go past and it doesn't happen at all, Angua snapped. I'd like some clothes, please, and a sword if there's going to be fighting. Um, I think Clatchins have a very particular view about women fighting, Carrot began. Yes, said Jabbar. We expect them to be good at it, Blue Eyes. We are dregs. The boat surfaced in the scummy dead water under a jetty. The lid opened slowly. Smells like home, said Nobby. You can't trust the water, said Sergeant Colon. But I don't trust the water at home, Sarge. Fred Colon managed to get a foothold on the greasy wood. It was, in theory, quite a heroic enterprise. He and Nobby Nobbs, the bold warriors, were venturing forth in hostile territory. Unfortunately, he knew they were doing it because Lord Vetinari was sitting in the boat and would raise his eyebrows in no uncertain manner if they refused. Colon had always thought that heroes had some special kind of clockwork that made them go out and die famously for God, country and apple pie, or whatever particular delicacy their mother made. It had never occurred to him that they might do it because they'd get yelled at if they didn't. He reached down. Come on up, Nobby, he said, and remember we're doing this for the gods, Ankh Morpork, and... It seemed to Colon that a foodstuff would indeed be somehow appropriate. And my mum's famous knuckle sandwich. Our mum never made us knuckle sandwiches, said Nobby, as he hauled himself onto the planks, but you'd be amazed at what she could do with a bit of cheese. Yeah, all right, but that ain't much of a battle cry, is it? For the gods Ankh Morpork and amazing things Nobby's mum can do with cheese. That'll strike fear in the hearts of the enemy, said Sergeant Colon as they crept forward. Ah, oh, well, if that's what you're after, you want my mum's distressed pudding and custard, said Nobby. Frightening, is it? They wouldn't want to know about it, Sarge. The docks of Al-Khali were like docks everywhere, because all docks everywhere are connected. Men have to put things on and off boats. There are only a limited number of ways to do this, so all docks look the same. Some are hotter, some are damper, there are always piles of vaguely forgotten-looking things. In the distance there was the glow of the city, which seemed quite unaware of the enemy incursion. "'Get us some clothes so that we'll blend in,' muttered Colon. "'That's all very well to say.' "'Nah, nah, that's easy,' said Nobby. "'Everyone knows how to do that one. "'You lurk in an alley somewhere, right, "'and you wait until a couple of blokes come by "'and you lure them into the alley, see, "'and there's a couple of thumps "'and then you come out wearing their clothes.' That works, does it? Never fail, Sarge, said Nobby, confidently. The desert looked like snow in the moonlight. Vimes found himself quite at ease with the tacticus method of fighting. It was how coppers had always fought. A proper copper didn't line up with a lot of other coppers and rush at people. A copper lurked in the shadows, walked quietly and bided his time. In all honesty, of course, the time he bided until was the point when the criminal had already committed the crime and was carrying the loot. Otherwise, what was the point? You had to be realistic. We got the man who done it carries a lot more gravitas than we got the man what looked as if he was going to do it, especially when people say prove it. Somewhere off to the left in the distance, someone screamed. 
Vimes was a bit uneasy in this robe, though. It was like going into battle in a nightshirt. Because he wasn't at all certain he could kill a man who wasn't actively trying to kill him. Of course, technically, any armed Clatchian these days was actively trying to kill him. That was what war was all about. But he raised his head over the top of the dune. A Clatchian warrior was looking the other way. Vimes crept. Bingly, 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 beep. This is your 7 a.m. alarm call. Insert name here. At least I hope... Huh? Damn. Vimes reacted first and punched the man on the nose. Since there was no point in waiting to see what effect this would have, he threw himself forward, and the two of them rolled down the other side of the freezing dunes, struggling and punching. But my real-time function seems erratic at the moment. The Clatchian was smaller than Vimes. He was younger, too, but it was unfortunate for him that he appeared to be too young to have learned the repertoire of dirty fighting that spelled survival in Ankh Morpork's backstreets. Vimes, on the other hand, was prepared to hit anything with anything. The point was that the opponent shouldn't get up again. Everything else was decoration. They slid to a halt at the bottom of the dune, with Vimes on top and the Clatchian groaning. Things to do, the disorganiser shrilled. Ache! And then it was probably throat-cutting time. Back home, Vimes could have dragged him off to the cells in the knowledge that everything would look better in the morning, but the desert had no such options. No, he couldn't do that. Thump the bloke senseless, that was the merciful way. Vindaloo! Vindaloo! Vimes' fist stayed raised. What? That's you, isn't it, Mr Vimes? Vindaloo! Vimes pulled a fold of cloth away from the figure's face. Are you Goriff's boy? I didn't want to be here, Mr Vimes. The words came fast, desperate. All right, all right, I'm not going to hurt you. Vimes lowered his fist and stood up, pulling the boy after him. Talk later, he muttered. Come on. No, everyone knows what the dregs do to their captives. Well, I'm their captive, and they'll have to do it to both of us, OK? Keep away from the more amusing food and you'll probably be OK. Someone whistled in the darkness. Come on, lad, hissed Vimes. No harm's going to come to you. Well, less than it'd come to you if you stayed here, all right? This time he didn't give the boy time to argue, but dragged him along. As he headed towards the dregs' camp, other figures slid down the dunes. One of them had an arm missing and had a sword sticking in him. How did you get on, Reg? said Vimes. A bit odd, sir. After the first one chopped my arm off and stabbed me, the rest of them seemed to keep out of my way. Honestly, you'd think they'd never seen a man stabbed before. Did you find your arm? Reg waved something in the air. That's another thing, he said. I hit a few of them with it and they ran off screaming. It's your type of unarmed combat, said Vimes. It probably takes some getting used to. Is that a prisoner you've got there? In a way, Vimes glanced around. He seems to have fainted. I can't think why. Reg leaned closer. These foreigners are a bit weird, he said. Reg? Yes? Your ear's hanging off. Is it? Wretched thing. You'd think a nail would work, wouldn't you? Sergeant Colon looked up at the stars. They looked down at him. At least Fred Colon had a choice. Beside him, Corporal Nobbs gave a groan. But the attackers had left him his pants. There are some places where the boldest dare not go, and those areas of Nobby upwards of the knees and downwards of the stomach were among them. Well, Colon thought of them as attackers. Technically, he supposed they were defenders. Aggressive defenders. Just run all that past me again, will you? He said. We fired a couple of blokes about our height and weight, 
We did that. We lure them into this alley. We did that. I take a swing at them with a length of wood and hit you by accident in the dark and they get angry and turn out to be thieves and nick all our clothes. We weren't supposed to do that. Well, it worked. Basically, said Nobby, managing to get to his knees. We could give it another go. Nobby, you're in a port in a foreign city clad only in your, and I use the word with feeling, Nobby, your unmentionables. This is not the point to start talking about luring people into alleys. There could be talk. Angua always says that nakedness is the national costume everywhere, Sarge. She was talking about herself, Nobby, said Colon, sidling along in the shadows. It's different for you. He peered around the other end of the alley. There was a noise and clatter from the building that formed one of the walls. A couple of laden donkeys waited patiently outside. Nip out and grab one of those packs, right? Why me, Sarge? Cos you're the corporal and I'm the sergeant, and you've got more on than me. Grumbling under his breath, Nobby edged into the narrow street and unfastened a tether as fast as he could. The animal followed him obediently. Sergeant Colon pulled at the pack. If push comes to shove, we can wear the sacks, he said. That'll... What's this? He held up something red. Flower pot, said Nobby helpfully. It's a fez. Some Clatchians wear them. Looks like we struck lucky. Oh, here's another one. Try it on, Nobby. And looks like one of them nightshirts they wear. And here's another one of those too. We're home and dry, Nobby. They're a bit short, Sarge. Beggars can't be choosers, said Colon, struggling into the costume. Go on, put your fez on. It makes me look like a twit, Sarge. Look, I'll put mine on all right. Then we'll be fez to fez, Sarge. Sergeant Colon gave him a severe look. Did you have that one prepared, Nobby? No, Sarge, I just made it up in my head right then. Well, look, no calling me Sarge. That doesn't sound Clatchian. Nor does Nobby, Sarge. Uh, sorry. Oh, I don't know. You could be Kenobi or Nobby or Nobby. Sounds pretty Clatchian to me. What's a good Clatchian name for you, then? I don't know hardly any, said Nobby. Sergeant Colon didn't answer. He was peering round the corner again. His lordship did say we was not to hang about, Nobby murmured. Yeah, but inside that tin can, well, it smells pretty lived in, if you know what I mean. What I wouldn't give for... There was a bellow behind them. They turned. There were three Clatchian soldiers, or possibly watchmen. Nobby and Sergeant Colon didn't look much further than the swords. The leader growled a question at them. What did he say? Nobby quavered. To know... Where are you from? said the leader in Morporkian. What? Oh, er. Uh... Colon hesitated, waiting for shiny death. Ah, yes. The guard lowered his sword and jerked a thumb towards the docks. You get back to your detachment now. Right, said Nobby. What your name? one of the guards demanded. Nobby, said Nobby. This seemed to pass. And you, fat one? Colon was panicking on the spot. He sought desperately for any name that sounded Clatchian, and there was only one that presented itself and which was absolutely and authentically Clatchian. Al, he said, his knees trembling. You get back right now or there will be trouble. The watchman ran for it, dragging the donkey behind them, and didn't stop until they were on the greasy jetty, which somehow felt like home. What was all that about, sir, um, Al, said Nobby. 
All they wanted to do was push us around a bit. Typical watch behaviour, he added. Not ours, of course. I suppose we had the right clothes on. You didn't even tell them where we came from, and they spoke our language. Well, they... I mean, anyone ought to be able to speak more Porkian, said Colon, gradually regaining his mental balance. Even babies learn it. I bet it comes easy after learning something as complicated as Clatchian. What are we going to do with the donkey, Al? Do you think it can pedal? I doubt it. Then leave it up here. But it'll get pinched, Al. Oh, these Clatchians will pinch anything. Not like us, eh, Al? Nobby looked at the forest of masts filling the bay. Looks like even more of them from here, he said. You could walk from boat to boat for a mile. What are they all here for? Don't be daft, Nobby, it's obvious. They're here to take everyone to Ankh-Mor Pork. What for? We don't eat that much curry. Invasion, Nobby. There's a war on, remember? They looked back at the ships. Riding lights gleamed on the water. The bit of it that was immediately below them bubbled for a moment, and then the hull of the boat rose a few inches above the surface. The lid unscrewed, and Leonard's worried face appeared. Ah, there you are, he said. We were getting concerned. They lowered themselves down into the fetid interior of the vessel. Lord Vetinari was sitting with a pad of paper across his knees, writing carefully. He glanced up briefly. Report. Nobby fidgeted while Sergeant Colon delivered a more or less accurate account, although there was some witty repartee with the Clatchian guards that the corporal had not hitherto recalled. Vetinari did not look up. Still writing, he said, Sergeant, Ur is an old country rimward of the kingdom of Jellababy, whose occupants are a byword for bucolic stupidity. For some reason, I cannot think why, the guard must have assumed you were from there and Morporkian is something of a lingua franca, even in the Clatchian Empire. When someone from Hersheba needs to trade with someone from Estancia, they will undoubtedly haggle in Morporkian. This will serve us well, of course. The force that is being assembled here must mean that practically every man is a distant stranger with outlandish ways. Provided we do not act too foreign, we should pass muster. This means not asking for curry with swede, and currents in it, and refraining from ordering pints of Winkle's old peculiar, do I make myself clear? Eh, uh, what is it we're going to do, sir? We will reconnoiter, initially. Ah, right, yes, very important. And then seek out the Clatchian High Command. Thanks to Leonard, I have a little package to deliver. I hope it will end the war very quickly. Sergeant Colon looked blank. At some point in the last few seconds, the conversation had run away with him. Sorry, sir, you said high command, sir. Yes, sergeant. Like the uh, top brass, or turbans or whatever. All surrounded by crack troops, sir. That's where you always put the best troops around the top brass. I expect this will be the case, yes. In fact, I rather hope it is. Sergeant Colon once again tried to keep up. Ah, right. And we'll go and look for them, will we, sir? I can hardly ask them to come to us, Sergeant. Right, sir, I can see that. It could be a bit crowded. At last, Lord Vetinari looked up. Is there some problem, Sergeant? And Sergeant Colon once again knew a secret about bravery. It was arguably a kind of enhanced cowardice. The knowledge that while death may await you if you advance, it will be a picnic 
compared to the certain living hell that awaits you should you retreat. Ah, not as such, sir, he said. Very well. Vetinari pushed his paperwork aside. If there is more suitable clothing in your bag, I will get changed and we can take a look at Al-Kali. Oh, gods. Sorry, Sergeant. Oh, good, sir. Good. Vetinari began to pull other items out of the liberated sack. There was a set of jugglers' clubs, a bag of coloured balls, and finally a placard such as might be placed to one side of the stage during an artiste's performance. Gully, gully, and Betty, he read. Exotic tricks and dances. Hmm, he added. It would seem there was a lady among the owners of this sack. The watchman looked at the gauzy material that came out of the sack next. Nobby's eyes bulged. What are them? I believe they're called harem pants, Corporal. They're very, uh... Curiously, the purpose of the clothing of the nautch girl or exotic dancer has always been less to reveal and more to suggest the imminence of revelation, said the patrician. Nobby looked down at his costume, and then at Sergeant Al Colon in his costume, and said cheerfully, Well, I ain't sure if it's going to suit you, sir. He regretted the words immediately. I hadn't intended that they should suit me, said the patrician calmly. Please pass me your fez, Corporal Betty. <laughs>